This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The solution to climate change is driving a wave of new green energy projects. But in the rush to satisfy demand, tribes are getting left out of conversations about protecting land with cultural or historical importance. A wind farm in Washington state and a solar energy transmission line in Arizona are two projects at odds with tribal concerns. Is there a way to build green energy and respect cultural lands? That conversation starts after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. An oversight correction relating to housing grant dollars in South Dakota tribal settings is advancing through the legislature. Last year, lawmakers passed the $200 million Housing Infrastructure Finance Program, but that program included language excluding tribal governments. House Bill 1041 modifies the bill's definition of public infrastructure to allow federally recognized tribes to claim from that pot. Further, it declares an emergency to allow tribal groups to claim that money sooner than later. The bill was brought by Sioux Falls Republican Representative Tyler Tortson, who's Sisseton Wapatent. He explains the scope of the proposal. Housing is a, is a challenge whether you're in Sioux Falls, whether you're in rural South Dakota, whether you're in the tribal communities. That was the reason why there was so much support for this, to just make sure that tribes are eligible, tribal entities are eligible, tribal housing authorities and nonprofits that you know operate in that area uh, of our state. Questions were raised about the necessity of an emergency provision in the bill. Sioux Falls Democratic Senator Reynold Nesaba says the need justifies the clause. My concern is that the grant funding is, is already gone because that became available July 1st. And so I do think it is urgent. I don't think it was anyone's intention to, uh, to, to keep tribal entities from being able to qualify. They have some of the most pressing housing problems in our state. The bill advanced with a due pass recommendation on an 8-1 to one vote and will next be heard on the House floor. The U.S. EPA recently announced it reached a settlement with the Navajo Tribal Utility Authority. That means the NTUA has agreed to improve wastewater treatment facilities in three communities in northern Arizona. Chris Clements of KSJD has more. The Department of Justice filed a complaint on behalf of the EPA that says the facilities violated Clean Water Act permits meant to protect human health and the environment by discharging wastewater not treated to proper levels into washes across the tribal nation. It also says the NTUA failed to maintain their facilities' sewage systems and prevent sewage spills. The roughly $100 million settlement will mean some short-term and long-term upgrades to facilities in Chinle, Kayenta, and Tuba City that serve about 20,000 people mostly Navajo citizens. Beth Abishan is a supervisory natural resource specialist for Region 9 of the EPA. When we look at Navajo and um, the the type of land it is, water resources are a limited uh, quantity out there. It's important to protect all of them. Abishan says that NTUA, a nonprofit enterprise of the Navajo Nation, has already begun much of the work needed at its treatment facilities. Federal grants from initiatives like the Bipartisan Infrastructure Plan and other sources are expected to cover the majority of the cost expected for the NTUA under the settlement. I'm Chris Clements. 
California state lawmakers and tribal leaders are taking a look at the Feather Alert a year after its implementation. The alert system is used to notify the public and law enforcement about missing Native American people, especially women and girls. It operates similar to the Silver and Amber Alerts. Like other alerts, it's overseen by the California Highway Patrol, although city police and sheriff's departments make the notification request. Assemblymember James Ramos authored the bill, which created the alert system. Ramos will lead a press conference at the state capitol in Sacramento Wednesday, followed by a legislative hearing. Tribal leaders, advocates, and law enforcement officers are expected to take part in both the news conference and hearing. State officials are also listed on the hearing. Ramos, who's the first and only California Native American in the state legislature, was recently named chair of the Assembly Budget Subcommittee, which deals with public safety issues. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Drummond Woodsum, a full-service law firm whose nationally recognized tribal nations practice provides services to tribal nations and their enterprises and to companies that do business with tribes across the country. More at dwmlaw.com. A historical trauma master class taught by Dr. Ruby Gibson and staff provides tuition-free online training to tribal members who are therapists, counselors, social workers, and traditional healers. Enrollment deadline is March 1st at freedomlodge.org, who support this show. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. In a rush to satisfy driving demand for more renewable energy, important cultural resources are threatened. The news outlet ProPublica wrote about a situation in Washington state where an archaeological survey commissioned by the developers of a wind generation project failed to list potential cultural sites that were obvious to state regulators. Tribes in Arizona are also at odds with a wind energy project that would put a power transmission line through an area with significant cultural ties. We'll look at the intersection of sustainable energy and sacred and important sites this hour. You're welcome to join us. Is there a green energy project happening near your community? Is it on land that everyone agrees is okay to develop or not? Call us at 1-800-996-2848 to share your thoughts on the air. That number is also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Speaking from Portland, Oregon, is B. Toasty Oster, a staff writer for High Country News and a citizen of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma. Good morning, Toasty. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Sean. It's great to be back. Great to have you. In Roslyn, Washington, we have Noah Oliver. He's a geographer and archaeologist for the Yakima Nation's Cultural Resources Program. Good morning to you as well, Noah. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Joining us from Tucson, Arizona, is Skylar Begay. He's the Director of Tribal Collaboration in Outreach and Advocacy for Archaeology Southwest. He's Dene 
Mandan, and Hidatsa. Hello, Skyler. Hi, Sean. Good to be on the air. Good to have you on as well, Skyler. And a disclaimer, Archaeology Southwest is an underwriter for Native America Calling. Also on our show today from Santa Rosa, California, is Reno Franklin. He is the tribal chairman of the Kashaya Band of Pomo Indians of Stewart's Point Rancheria. He's also a member of the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation and chair of the National Association of Tribal Historic Preservation Officers. Chairman Franklin, good morning and welcome to NAC. Hey, good morning and uh, happy to join. Thank you. Well, it's good to have all of our guests on the line now. And Toasty, I'm going to go ahead and start with you today. We referenced your ProPublica article related to Badger Mountain in Washington, where a knowledgeable state official raised a red flag after a questionable archaeological survey. Please provide our listeners with more detail. What went wrong here? Well, it kind of started with um, the the moment that the state lands archaeologist who worked for the Department of Natural Resources went out to double-check some archaeological work that had been uh, commissioned by the developer. Um, basically, the context here is that the state relies on developer-funded surveys in order to inform the state of what kinds of cultural resources might be on the ground before development happens. So the developer in this case, they commissioned an archaeological and cultural survey that um, did not match what the state lands archaeologist actually saw when she went out there to check their work. And in fact, she said that the discrepancy was larger than any that she's seen in 24 years of cultural resources in her, in her career. So there was a big gap. Um, they they undercounted um, cultural resources like you know artifacts and first foods and things of that nature. Uh, and then there was a lot of fallout after that, after what she found. So there was fallout after she, after this information was revealed. And um, for that initial survey that you described that uh, this company hired a, a private firm to do that, were any tribes in that area consulted with during that initial survey? During the survey, not to my knowledge, um, and that, you know, we really, when, when I was reporting this, it was, it was interesting because a lot of state agencies and um, private companies would be like, well, we, we're consulting with the tribes, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to get, you know, tribal input. But Consultation, in a way, is like a side factor because the system, the way that the system for permitting solar and wind, oh, and by the way, this is a, a solar project, not a wind project, but the way that the permitting system is set up for both, at least in the state of Washington, it, it gives these advantages to the developer uh, and it, it creates these kind of automatic uh, disadvantages that put tribes on the defensive or having to play catch up. And so there can be consultation going on and it can still, and the system can 
will be causing problems for tribes. Those can be happening in parallel. Mm -hmm. Now, this state regulator that went out and just saw all of these discrepancies between what she saw and what was listed in, in that report. So um, what happened then? She went ahead and shared that information, shared those findings. What was the response? Yeah, she took those findings back to the DNR and she told, she emailed her, her colleagues uh, at the Department of Natural Resources and told them what she found, you know, told them that it was extraordinary, uh, that this was kind of a big deal. Uh, and then she told the tribes and um, she was, the, there were two potentially impacted tribes, uh, you know, who have, who have a concern in this piece of land. Uh, that's the Confederated Tribes of the Colville Reservation and the Yakima Nation. And so she was showing her findings to a tribal archaeologist from uh, Colville, and she ended up getting this string of uh, kind of urgent text messages from the developer asking her what she had said to tribes and telling her not to share that information with tribes while she was standing there with a tribal archaeologist, ironically. So, um, and, and she, didn't, she didn't back down. The state lands archaeologist didn't back down. She kept doing her job, and, you know, she, it was her job to share her findings with the tribes and to, you know, take this information to the state and to, you know, try to take steps to correct it. And she was doing that, um, and the developer... Uh, the developer pushed back. Mm. Pushed back. Okay. So explain for our listeners, Toasty, um, what type of power or authority uh, does this does this regulator or, or the state uh, office that she represents, what type of influence do they have with regard to, to demanding a follow-up survey or holding this company accountable for these discrepancies? It was actually pretty hard to get a straight answer from them about that, but the way that they, the way that this agency approaches their position is that they consider themselves to play the role of the landlord in this whole transaction. So the solar developer is coming to lease land or applying to lease land from them. They told me that the Department of uh, Natural Resources is not actually a regulator at all of renewable energy uh, developers. So they're acting like a business partner, and our investigation reflects that, that in you know, emails and correspondences, they, they refer to the developer as a customer. They, they treat the developer kind of the way that you expect you know, a company to treat a, a customer instead of the way that you would expect a state agency that's in a in a regulatory position to uh, to treat a, a project proponent. Hmm. So this these developers, I mean, what authority? Do they ultimately answer to then? Because uh, I, I can't. There are no treaties involved, are there? I mean, what kind of power do tribes have with regard to to addressing developers and companies like this, and and, and what can they accomplish going forward? Yeah, those are 
pretty interesting questions. Um, there is a treaty involved, it's the Treaty of 1855, which the Yakima Nation signed with the United States, and some folks from the Colville, uh, I believe, are also signatories to the Treaty of 1855. And that does protect certain rights that um, those folks, those communities have on this piece of public land, including the right to gather first foods. So they have that, um, you know, in their sort of legal toolkit to defend their culture and um, to defend the land. And, you know, that's certainly um, one approach that they can take. I forgot the first part of your question, though. Can you say that again? Well, what authority do these developers answer to ultimately? Because uh, like you described, the, the state agency does not regulate. Yeah. Well, when I asked other agencies, uh, they, they all kind of pointed at each other. It was kind of like that Spider-Man meme where there's three Spider-Mans and they're all pointing at each other. And it was really <laughs> hard to get a straight answer. You know, who who is the authority ultimately? But basically there's a council of folks appointed by the governor and they're called, this is kind of a mouthful, but they're called the Energy Facility Siting Evaluation Council. They're called FSEC for short. And in, in the case of this project, the one at Badger Mountain, they're the permitting authority. So they're, they're um, developing the environmental impact statement and then it's their job to either recommend this project to the governor for permits or to recommend against it. So ultimately, it comes down to the governor. All right. Toasty, thanks for kicking us off here. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we will talk with Noah Oliver from the Yakima Nation. Stay with us. We'll be right back. With their Arrowhead logo and problematic chants from fans, the Kansas City football team plays this Sunday in hopes of a repeat trip to the Super Bowl. The NFL team is among the organizations that continue to resist pressure to change controversial team branding. We'll check in on the momentum to change what some consider offensive team names coming up on the next Native America Calling. Pursuing a degree in higher education is attainable, and with a scholarship from Native Forward Scholars Fund, it is more affordable. From aerospace to veterinary medicine, as the largest direct scholarship provider to Native students in the U.S., Native Forward has empowered over 22,000 students from over 500 tribes in all 50 states in pursuit of their undergraduate, graduate, and professional degrees. Info and applications at nativeforward.org, who support this show. You're listening to Native America Calling. We are discussing a wave of new green energy projects and how they intersect with tribal concerns. Is there a green energy project near you? Is your tribe working on its own green energy project? Let us know how it's working out by calling 1-800-996-2848. That number again, 1-800-996-2848. Our next guest, Noah Oliver, is the geographer and archaeologist for the Yakima Nation's Cultural Resources Program. Noah, it's great to have you on the show. And uh, this Badger Mountain Solar Project that Toasty just explained to us, uh, is this an isolated incident? Or are you seeing a trend with regard to developers just ignoring uh, 
tribal lands and uh, safeguards and, and cultural issues that occur? Uh, well, it's definitely not an isolated issue, but but just to help explain, I'd like to just take a little bit of a step back uh, and, and explain that, you know, the, the program that I work for, uh, the Cultural Resource Program is also known as Nami Tamanwe. It's the, the creator's law. So we're taught to, to enforce these teachings that respect the things that sustain our lives. Uh, and in doing so, you know, we can bring good onto ourselves and the people around us. And, and the opposite is true. If, if we knew um, and we understand that those things sustain our life, uh, the land we walk upon, uh, the water, the giver of life that makes the earth fertile, the air and, that we breathe every day we take a breath and it sustains us. And every living culture uh, from the time the sun sets in the morning until uh, until it sets at night and, and everything that that light touches has an order and a purpose, you know, like beyond our ecosystem. All the people who live their life and they didn't destroy those things so that we could live. And so we, we respect those people and the people that we share the experience with today and also the future generations yet unborn. And that's mm-hmm. the teaching um, that our program is supposed to operate in. Um, but when we, when we talk about renewable um, energy or alternative energy projects, and there's this real focus that anything that will offset carbon emissions will be a benefit um, to our, survival, so our survivability and to the health of our system. But I like to use an analogy here um, just to kind of get people's minds working around what the tribes are faced with. So if I was to go and plant a tree uh, and that tree grew, maybe it grew 30 feet tall, it shaded shaded this creek, it helped this, uh, this surface water temperature and it helped the surface of the earth, it helped you know, process carbon dioxide and create oxygen. It, it's a carbon sink, it's all of these other things, right? Most people would say, that was a benefit uh, to the climate, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but if I put a solar panel on my on my house on my on my roof, and that solar panel uh, generated electricity, um, people would say, "Oh, you're offsetting carbon emissions, and you're a benefit uh, to the to the environment because you're helping decrease, uh, you know, this global climate trend." But consider if I cut that tree down and I put a solar panel on top of it. Is that a net benefit to climate, to our right. environment? Right. And then consider if that if that tree that I cut down wasn't a tree, say it was a vital piece of shrub step, maybe a hundred acres where elk foraged and where all these other animals lived, and and now they didn't have any access to that, and now this part of uh, this arid environment is now covered with these black solar panels, you know, and people would say, oh, that's a net benefit. I don't know that that's true, and I don't think that we're taking uh, the, the the exercise to say, is this a net benefit? Does this does this contribute? Are we actually doing something respectful and moving forward in a good way? Um, and, right. and that's a piece that's missing from the whole process. Right, uh, and right. If, if that if that wasn't a shrub step, what if it was an agricultural field? Well, then we're that's a food supply as well as what it could be potentially benefiting the environment. So I think that there's there's just not enough in there, and then all these projects on tribal land where people are actively utilizing, do, blessing the foods in the longhouse. So it's much, much bigger than, than just this one project. It's, it's a whole uh, subset and, and, and kind of more colonial effort to, to green energy than, 
and I think is is accurately addressing the problem that we all recognize. But it's a it's a kind of you're either with us or against us mentality, and I, I don't think that's right. No, you raised some really interesting points, and and I want to continue with this logic here because do you find any hypocrisy in the fact that today we're talking about green energy companies? accused of bad faith in dealing with tribes. And, and these are some of the very same companies that often promote themselves as being more socially and environmentally conscious than, than traditional power companies. Uh, well, you know, I think that there's, there's an opportunity um, that's economic, and I think that that's, that's a driver. Um, and there's a lot of um, funding mechanisms, and, you know, there, there's definitely, we're trying to create this market pull and I think that it's causing, uh, you know, a scenario that's playing out where, you know, cultural programs and most tribes are overwhelmed. The amount of projects that are coming in uh, within the Yakima's area is, is far exceeding how many uh, staff members we can allocate in consultation. And, mm-hmm. and so it's not a secret to anybody. Everyone knows. Um, but there's not really the mechanisms to, to prevent it and to take the hard look. I mean, I know uh, Toasty mentioned FSEC and how the FSEC council works. You know, there's biases built in. There's there's a lot of things that are going on that are that are affecting um, the tribe's ability to, to be able to have a voice in the process. I think we're very fortunate in Washington state where we have a very active Department of Archaeology uh, they're, of course, wrapped up in politics, but they do try to give us this avenue to have a fair and just process, uh, you know, and, and so there's people that are trying to do that. And, of course, there's also bad actors, but but the, the, the problem as a whole is much deeper um, than just the one project. And, and we have to try to understand that it's not necessarily the company, it's not necessarily the agency, it's, it's, it's bigger than that. We have a problem we need to address. Uh, but we're not we're not actually addressing the problem in a lot of cases, and we're not doing the exercise to make sure that we are, and it's being done off the backs of tribes and the people who utilize those resources. Well, Noah, what would you like to see as a possible solution? Because other than halting the project, is there any way, in your view, for tribes to effectively work with these developers so that all sides are satisfied? Well, I mean, that's obviously a little bit <laughs> difficult to accomplish to satisfy all sides, but I do think that the, the federal process has uh, something under the National Historic Preservation Act called Section 110. And in Section 110, people inventory uh, the lands that they have. Well, the state doesn't have an equivalent process, but inventorying your lands and having an idea of what's on those lands does help um, save the developers, the tribes, the agencies, all these people from from basically, you know, battling once a project has already been cited and selected and, and moving forward, um, they would have a better idea before they say, okay, this is an area. And and you can do studies with the tribes in inclusion so that you can say, hey, these types of, of projects are not well suited for this area because of A, B, and C. But I think there are ways to, to work through it. Uh, I just don't think that we've we've been provided the, the mechanisms yet on the state level. All right. And Noah, let's get back to these surveys here, in, especially regarding this initial survey that was conducted. It was a, a private company, a for-profit company. 
what can be done to ensure that these surveys are, are more diligently performed and more accurate? Well, well, like I was saying, if these surveys were done before the developer was on the land and moving forward, if there was already sort of an inventory and an understanding of what are the expected impacts, um, you know, maybe the developer wouldn't have looked at that potential uh, acquisition or project in the same light. Uh, maybe it would have changed the course of, of uh, you know, that site selection. This area isn't well suited because we know there's these resources and it would have been evaluated by someone other than the contractor selected by that agency with a built-in bias. Mm -hmm. And uh, some people might think to themselves, well, geez, you know, we need more native people doing these types of surveys. We need more native archaeologists, people that are more familiar with these lands, people that understand the cultural nuances of these lands. Would that help? I, I certainly think that that would help. Um, I'd also like to make sure that it's perfectly clear. I am, I am myself, I'm not a tribal member, so I've been privileged um, to learn and work with some very talented folks um, here at Yakima Nation. And, and I learned much, much more from the folks I worked with here than, than I did in school. Um, I mean, there there is no replacement for, for tribal knowledge. And and those those people who, who have that those credentials, I mean, they're, they're so valuable to, to the discipline and to the practice so that people can actually have a greater understanding of, of what they see on the ground um, and what it means, you know, it's it's not uh, it's just not just these isolated little silos that people like to put things through, mm -hmm. uh, but it actually has a much greater purpose and understanding. And and tribes that have treaty rights uh, like Yakima, you know, they they have a reserved right to the resources in that area. Um, and so I think that that's something that that you know across the board is just missing. And and you know, hopefully. Uh, you know, we work towards a greater understanding. Um, I mean, that's all you can really hope for. Well, uh, Noah, really appreciate you coming on today and uh, sharing your expertise, your information, uh, Toasty as well. Uh, appreciate all of your reporting. And I sure encourage listeners today, if you're familiar with any type of renewable energy projects near your communities, give us a call and, and tell us how you feel whether or not those projects are proceeding as they should, if you see any issues, uh, if you've seen any situations where uh, developers don't seem to be taking the right precautions or the right steps to uh, protect and uh, take care of native lands, give us a call. We'd sure like to hear your story. Our number is 1-800-996-2848. Now, um, this story here, the Badger Mountain, that was a solar issue and now we're going to move down to arizona and talk about a wind project with skylar begay he is the director of tribal collaboration and outreach and advocacy for archaeology southwest and skylar this sunzia project uh it's one of many projects that tribes oppose and are responding to um just similar in many ways to what we've learned about in Washington. What does this say to you about outside developers and their history of dealing with tribal lands? Well, uh, similar to what uh, the guest before me was saying, you know, is just that they um, don't have a great understanding of what these lands mean to indigenous peoples and to sovereign tribal nations around the Southwest. 
and um, you know the fact that this project is happening um, basically as a way to respond to the climate crisis um, means that you know the the precedent that's being set right now is not a good one and um, you know if, if this solution to climate change is something that you know we're going to pursue um, it needs to be done much more deliberately and with greater respect to um, tribal lands and tribal homelands. And Skyler, your organization, Archaeology Southwest, what kind of work do you folks do? So we are a nonprofit. We are based in Tucson, Arizona, on the on the homelands of the Tohono O'odham Nation and the Pasquayaki Tribe. And basically what we do is try to explore and protect heritage places while honoring their diverse values. And that looks uh, on the outside in the form of a magazine that we publish um, by the same name, Archaeology Southwest. And, uh, you know, we, we try to compile information and make it understandable for the public. And so that people can learn that, you know, uh, basically all public lands across the country are indigenous homelands and that all natural landscapes are also cultural landscapes because, you know, our ancestors basically lived everywhere. Um, my work specifically and that of my colleagues here also delves into the realm of landscape protection and advocating for the protection of cultural landscapes. And um, we also are committed to working with tribes and collaborating with tribes as much as possible in all those regards. Okay. Now, Southwest, uh, Archaeology Southwest, you folks uh, entered into a lawsuit with a couple of tribes uh, against uh, the U.S. federal government with regard to this Sunzia Southwest Transmission Project. Tell us more about that lawsuit. Yeah, so the lawsuit was just filed last week and it um, challenges the Bureau of Land Management and their failure to comply with the National Historic Preservation Act, as well as the Administrative Procedure Act, and a few other executive orders and secretarial orders, um, which all have to deal with how the federal government conducts their consultation with tribes. And the lawsuit is basically saying that uh, the the Department of Interior and the Bureau of Land Management uh, failed to meet those laws and comply with those laws. And how confident are you that you're going to get some redress uh, through the courts? Well, the fact that um, the Tohono O'odham Nation and the San Carlos Apache Tribe, as well as the Center for Biological Diversity, are involved uh, gives me hope that the um, judges will, you know, listen to the tribal leadership's voices. Um, and ARC Southwest's role is really sort of, um, you know, more in support of Tano Autumn Nation and San Carlos Apache. And, uh, you know, using sort of our considerable expertise when it comes to the archaeological resources that are present in the San Pedro Valley, which is extensive. Um, and the consultation process that has been 
taken over the past couple of years, basically since 2009, um, when tribes have been saying to the BLM, you know, this transmission line shouldn't go here um, for mo a number of reasons, uh, as well as the fact that there is a completely viable alternative route for this transmission line to go along that um, would mitigate a lot of these costs to the archaeological and cultural resources and altogether avoid them in some instances uh, gives me a, a good um, indication that uh, we'll get some sort of address in the court. We're going to take another short break, and when we come back, we will speak with Chairman Verlin Jose of the Tahana Otham Nation, who will tell us a little bit more about this Sunzia project and the importance of the land there in the San Pedro Valley. We're also going to talk with uh, Chairman Reno Franklin with the Kashaya Band of Pomo Indians of Stewart's Point Rancheria. He's in California. Give us a call if you'd like to add to the conversation. 1-800-996-2848. Support by Archaeology Southwest. Did you know almost all major archaeological sites in the Southwest have been looted or vandalized? Looting and vandalism impact indigenous people, past, present, and future. Every day, countless Native American cultural items are lost or damaged forever through looting and vandalism. Federal and tribal laws protect archaeological resources. More information about ending archaeological resource crime and how to submit a tip at savehistory.org and on social media at Save History. You're tuned in to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. How are green energy developments helping or hurting you and your community? We're hearing from our guests about a wave of projects that threaten tribal cultural resources. Does this sound familiar? Still time to join the conversation? Let us know. Our number is 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. From Cells, Arizona, we have... Chairman of the Tohono O'odham Nation, Verlin Jose, on the line. Welcome, Chairman Jose. Uh, hello, good day. Uh, Verlin Jose, Chairman of Tohono O'odham Nation. Good day to you as well, sir. Now, uh, we just heard from Skyler uh, telling us more about the Sunzia project, uh, an energy project there uh, in parts of Arizona and New Mexico. Uh, Tohono O'odham Nation, you folks are one of the plaintiffs in the lawsuit that Skylar described as well. Why exactly is uh, the Tohono O'odham Nation opposed to this project? The Tohono O'odham Nation and other tribes are opposed to this. Tohono O'odham Nation is opposed to this because in our, our, our Himadak, our way of life, and our, our teaching from the beginning, uh, we have uh, two main purposes is to protect the people and protect the land. Uh, the Don Autumn Nation uh, and, uh, takes these things very seriously uh, where we're not opposed to uh, development or, or, or green energies and some of that, but we do are very serious about protecting the land, protecting the land, and more so where we have this historic, cultural, uh, ceremonial, burial sites and all these things that are very important to us um, to protect. Uh, and, and, and for years, uh, we've, they've chosen to ignore the tribal environmental concerns um, about building this new transmission line. 
the other folks will tell you uh, something different. But the fact of the matter that we know, we've been uh, stating this from the beginning, and we knew about it, and therefore we've tried to exercise all options available. Um, and we come to this point where we have to file a document in the court. Chairman, please tell us more about this land in the San Pedro Valley, because this land is not actually, um, this is not reservation land. These are not actually tribal lands. Is that correct? They're, they're nearby, but not exactly land that you folks uh, have current legal claim to. Is that right? Well, not tribal land by whose definition, you know, uh, foreign governments have, have came in and told tribes that, okay, here's your reservation, these are your tribal lands. The Aboriginal lands of the Dawn Autumn uh, go from half the state of Sonora, Mexico, to half the state of, of Arizona. Mm-hmm. You know, from the San Pedro River on the east to the Rio Colorado, the Sea of Cortez, that entire area is the footprint of the autumn. It is known archaeologically, and anthropologists have studied that and looked and, and have well documented the footprint of the autumn. It is autumn land. It is autumn land. This is where the Creator placed us. Others will tell you that it's not autumn land, that we have no jurisdiction, and by today's society, that's what it is. But we have a higher law that tells us that is autumn land and that we must protect that. We must figure out how we maneuver through the societal parameters in, in order to protect it, and that's what we're doing. So when one says that it's not autumn land, it's not reservation, it may not be the 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 small the two point the small two point eight million acres that comprise the Thorn Autumn Nation's reservation, but it is the Aboriginal land of the autumn, and that's why it is so important that we protect it because it's truly been identified and deemed as land of the autumn. Okay. Chairman Jose, appreciate that clarification. And um, so, of course, uh, you're part of this lawsuit, and, and this is primarily directed at the Bureau of Land Management. What efforts uh, did uh, the Tahana Otham Nation or any of these other tribal partners uh, take uh, before having to take the uh, the step of going to court here and, and filing suit? What were some initial efforts that led to this? Well, you know, for... More than a decade, you know, the the current owners of Pattern Energy and privately owned, uh, a private old Canadian pension fund, they've chosen to ignore tribal tribal concerns, the environmental concerns about building that new transmission line. Uh, you know, instead of sharing a much less environmentally or culturally transmission alternative route that remains readily available, they chose to ignore it. Uh, you know, St. Carlos Apache, Thorn Autumn Nation, and Zuni tribes have gone on to document. Uh, we have we have Thorn Autumn Nation uh, by our archaeologists and our records show that we have opposed this from the beginning. We have opposed this, and 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 the consultation depends what is 
defined as tribal consultation, there's really been no true consultation with the Donaldson Nation. You know, we had one most recently, but all they told us is that, you know what, it's still going on. Oh, and our concerns were, were, were not an option. They weren't. So I'm like, well, why are we having this consultation? You're not listening to us. You're just going through the process to check the check the box that you've consulted with us. But you're basically telling us that you're going to do it anyway. You're doing it anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have we have opposed this. We the Don Automation and the tribes have opposed this um, for more than a decade. So. And that's why we're here today. So it's it's been documented by not only Stone Automation but other tribes, um, in written documents and verbal communications. Uh, we do this all the time, you know. Uh, so, yeah, that's what we've done. Uh, but what the government has not done, the federal government has not done, has not listened to the tribe. You know, they tell us we're trust dependents of the federal government. Uh, we can't even depend on the federal government because they don't even listen to us, you know, so we have to exercise all options that we have available to us. Chairman, do you, do you notice any difference uh, in your negotiations with the federal government? Do you notice any differences with regard to who's in the white house or what political party uh, is in power at the current, at the either currently or in the past or, is the federal response typically the same regardless? Well, you know, I guess there's a thing called federalism. <laughs> and yes, it does determine who's in, who's in, who's in office and so forth. At least uh, for the current, uh, I see other federal departments uh, and entities because of the executive orders that have been issued in the past are, are some are following up and true to that and have been actually consulting with tribes more so than ever before, where in the past, you know, it was hard to get the federal government to listen to anything. Um, so I think there's, there's been more uh, true consultation, and that's what tribes have been requesting all along, is we were requesting at least some true consultation with the tribe. So. Uh, but there are some uh, entities that uh, choose to ignore their own executive orders, you know, U.S. federal executive orders, um, because of the almighty dollar or, or, or the, the interested parties on the backside to that. You know, it's all a, mm-hmm. it's what it is. It's all about the almighty dollar. And, and, and for us as tribes, it's about we're not doing this to get rich. We're doing this because we're rich in our culture, we're rich in our heritage, we're rich in our land, we're rich in our ceremony, and that's what we're going to protect. Chairman Jose, thank you so much. And I want to bring Chairman Reno Franklin into our conversation now, joining us from Santa Rosa, California, Tribal Chair of the Kashai Band of Pomo Indians of Stewart's Point Rancheria. Chairman, again, thank you for joining us. Appreciate your patience. And uh, listening to our show today, are you facing similar issues with green energy projects that your tribe has had to respond to? Just a, one quick housekeeping thing. Uh, Shasta Gone is actually the chair of, uh, of NAFPO now. Uh, I'm a former chair. But um, 
Yeah, to answer your question, we, we absolutely are. And uh, from my perspective, you know, not just as a tribal chair, but also, you know, uh, sitting at the table that uh, makes historic preservation policy for the country, um, that's, I, I'm fearful, uh, I'm nervous, I'm worried, uh, I, and I can't get uh, things across the table fast enough right now. You know, we have an, an amazing chair. Chair Bronin at the ACHP, and uh, and you know, and she's helping us to get things, you know, corrected. But you know, it, it, an example, right, in the Indigenous knowledge um, policy that that we're working on at ACHP, I can't get that thing fast enough. I mean, it's hopefully going to be adopted in March. You know, you you just heard Chairman just now. I mean, we could we could have used that last year. You know how, how we have energy projects that are coming in. You know, green energy, renewable energy projects that are coming in and we have federal agencies that need a definition of how to incorporate what exactly is and assist them with how to define indigenous knowledge so that we can then uh, as tribal um, leaders as uh, tribal employees then take that guidance and say have you followed this and if you haven't followed that start over because here's what you're supposed to have done and demonstrate to me that you did it and uh, and that's that's at the heart of not just my concerns, you know, these large-scale uh, wind energy projects coming to the coast of, of California. Uh, my tribe, um, on top of being the greatest softball players in all of Indian country, um, <laughs> we also, uh, are, you know, are right there on the coast. And, um, you know, uh, we, we uh, have trust land reservation in the hills above the ocean Pacific, you know, and uh, and we own land right there that goes into the ocean. So, you know, uh, how are we going to be consulted with? How are they going to uh, and take the things that we tell them are our concerns? And uh, and basically, um, you know, in my way, in Kashaya way, make federal agencies follow Kashaya Ta'awi, which is our cultural law. And, uh, you know, and so we're, we're oh, man, ACHP, we're so close. <laughs> we're so mm-hmm. close to pushing this policy over the line, you know, 14 consultations with tribes and Native Hawaiians and talking to the SHPOs, talking to the federal agencies, making sure that just like with the U.S. burial policy that we changed, uh, you know, through consultation with tribes, um, that we get a 100 percent vote on the ACHP. We, we're, we, you know, we want agencies and experts and, uh, and, and obviously my vote as the lone tribal person on it. Um, we want us to, to have un- unanimity. We want everybody on the same page and saying, yes, this is good. We're really close to getting that done. I just, I wish, you know, it was a way to get it, get it done faster, but you know, the federal wheels turn slower than we need sometimes. And then too fast when we don't want them to. (laughs) Well, chairman, you know, somebody listening to the show might right now might think to themselves, well, you know, this sounds, this doesn't sound ideal, but at the end of the day, these are green energy projects, and uh, this is a way to move forward with regard to so many of these issues that uh, not just the United States, but the entire planet is facing with regard to the climate. And um, they might in some ways think, well, some of these tribes are maybe standing in the way of that progress. What's your response to that? It's the same thing that I've said since day one, right? So um, I was appointed to this position by President Obama, served through Trump, and I'm now serving in the Biden administration. And I've said the same thing every time when it comes to these types of projects, 
going back to the original ones during the Obama administration, um, I think, personally, think that tribes are in favor of clean energy and wanting to do these projects um, that are light hand on the land and better for our environment. But my stern warning to federal agencies has always been the same, not on the backs of Indian tribes. Get these projects done, save our environment. It was ours first, it always will be, but don't do it on our backs. Don't do it at the expense of non-renewable cultural resources. Mm-hmm. You know, be, be, be um, light hand on the land. And I'm a former fireman and uh, a big thing when we were putting in fire lines, being an all Indian crew, my captain, Adi Nanio, preached to us, light hand on the land. Like, hey, man, you don't got to cut that. Don't cut it. <laughs> you know, and it's the same, it's the same, same thing. It's not on our backs. Chairman, we're going to have to wrap up the show in about another minute and a half or so. But are there any examples like what you're describing where rather than create these projects on the backs of tribal communities uh, at the cost of tribal resources, cultural resources, where uh, a developer has shifted, has pivoted and worked in a way that's that's more conducive and more beneficial and doesn't harm tribes in the way that apparently these other projects are? Yeah, you know, unfortunately, there's more bad examples than good examples, you know, and the bad examples, uh, man, it's just like they're everywhere, right? And it's it's uh, a lot of attention uh, that should be focused on them, um, you know, but, but at the same time, I think that it, you don't have to look too far. And I would direct people to the Department of Energy's website and put in their renewable energy on tribal lands, and it'll pull it right up. And you can see dozens of projects that are really well done tribal projects from the micro level to individual homes and doing solar, um, doing solar in a way that. Well, we're going to have to wrap up our show now, folks. Uh, Big thank you to Chairman Reno Franklin, also Chairman Verlin Jose, Skylar Begay, B. Toasty Oster, and Noah Oliver for joining us today to talk about uh, renewable energy and uh, how projects can be more beneficial to tribal communities. Tomorrow on the show, we'll talk about momentum to change controversial mascot names as Kansas City and San Francisco play for conference championships this weekend. Hope you'll join us. I'm Sean Spruce. Support provided by Amerind. Amerind is 100% tribally owned and partners with tribes and their businesses to provide affordable commercial insurance coverage, protect tribal sovereignty, and strengthen Native American communities by helping to keep dollars in Indian country. Information about property, liability, commercial auto, and workers' comp available at amerind.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D dot com. Services. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. 
Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.